0: Hey everyone, in our pursuits of living more meaningful lives, there's this concept that's really important, which is just love. It's relationships, it's friends, it's family, it's community, it's love for our craft, it's love for the art we create, it's love all around. And today's guest is an expert in the things that we love. And Professor Aaron Ahuvia talks about his work first studying dating services before they were online, and then how that transformed into figuring out how we love the things that we do in life, like brands and things and and experiences and all of that stuff. I think this is a very fascinating episode. I know I was trying really hard not to nerd out. Like, I love topics like this, ultimately, if you can listen to how to love in a different way or to think about the things that you love and how that relates to you, that it can help you on your meaningful revolution. So with that, let's get into the episode with Professor Aaron Ahuvia. Hey everyone, welcome to the Meaningful Revolution podcast, where we hope to inspire you to follow your meaningful pursuits and purposes. Today's guest is a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. He's one of the most widely published and cited experts on brand love, a noted expert on how consumer behavior impacts our happiness. And with that, I'd love to introduce our guest today, Professor Aaron Ahuvia. Welcome to the show.
1: Great Sean. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. And hey, we were
0: talking about this a little bit before turning the record button on here. But if you could start a meaningful revolution in the world to help people follow their fulfilling transformation, their purposeful impacts or authentic movements, what would you try to call it?
1: Hard to come up with a term, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go big. I'm gonna call it the love revolution. All right. Yeah.
0: Love Revolution. Based on your research and expertise, could you maybe share why you call it the Love Revolution? How you got started in studying happiness and the things that we love?
1: Yeah. I call it the Love Revolution because it's about trying to bring love and passion into more and more aspects of your life. You want to... uh, course, surround yourself with people that you love and love the people you are surrounded by, <laughs> but uh, you can also love the activities you spend your time on. You can love the objects that you surround yourself with. I noted as I started doing my own research a while ago, that the things that we love at their objects that we love, they both become part of our own identity and they also become part of our world in that. If you do a good job with your home, you, know, you got, they're all over the place. Right. And you live in this world surrounded by these things. And so it really is a chance to bring, your know, things you love and the passion in your life into more aspects of your life. If you want to, how I got started on this, that's a fun story. I was a PhD student in marketing at Northwestern.
0: Okay.
1: And there's a well-known marketing professor, Philip Kotler. And he was explaining to us that uh, everything is marketing. If you're in politics, you're marketing to voters, et cetera. Even if you're dating, you're marketing with the person you're out on the date with. And I was single at the time. I thought this was way more interesting than real marketing. So I asked him if I could do my term paper on that. And he said yes and connected me with the professor, Mara Edelman, who had research data on a dating service. This was just before the internet came around and dating services were just starting to become a part of a mainstream american culture they were still very marginalized but they were just getting going Mark edelman and i we co-authored four major papers together on dating services and became for a time the world's leading academic experts on dating services And i can say <laughs> that without any vanity because we were the only academic experts on dating services. Nobody else in the world was stupid enough to study dating services. We were both the top and the bottom of that list, but it was very fun. And now we see that dating services are a super important part of our culture. People, that's the number one way by far that people Mm -hmm. meet their romantic partners. But at a time that I started doing this research, was very marginalized. Almost nobody was doing this. And Mark, you is a very strange person to, to be involved in this. It's very interesting to see that develop. Anyway, in order to do this research on dating services, I need to understand why people fall in love with each other and how romantic love works. Mm. And so I spent a couple of years researching that and really enjoyed it. Uh, but then I needed to get a job as a marketing professor. And I was like, nobody's going to hire me if I'm the dating services professor. This is still too. <laughs> marginalized. Now they probably would, but then it was such a weird thing. So I thought, what can I do? I've spent years studying the psychology of love, and I know that people love objects, they love brands, they love products, but they also love activities. They love all kinds of things. They love nature. What if we took what we know about the psychology of love and see if that gives us any added insights into why people connect with objects or activities and it did and it was turned out that a lot of people looked at the psychology of interpersonal love and a lot of people looked at why people prefer one product to another product but nobody had actually taken this sort of research on love and said what is how does this connect to people's preferences for products and brands or other kinds of things. So I was the first person to really do a significant scientific study in that area. And then a little bit later, with a, a colleague, Barbara Cheryl, I published a paper that popularized the term brand love that mm-hmm. had existed before, but nobody had really was using it. And so that really kicked off research in this area. Now, if you go on Google Scholar and you put in brand love, you'll find over 14,000 different papers from people all over the world that are talking about this. But when I started doing this work, that was me. (laughs) That was it. (laughs) It's been really fun. I've kept going at it now for many years. And the book, The Things We Love, really presents a new theory of a new way of understanding this. I I guess I've been researching this for 30 years. I would say the first 20, I looked at it one way. And Mm -hmm. then there was some more recent scientific discoveries that really changed my mind about things. And I had to really reevaluate how I thought about it. And then the recent book is that reevaluation. Awesome. Uh, Could you
0: go into that big mindset shift? Because I haven't had a chance to check out your book quite yet, but I Mm -hmm. am like, it's on my... (laughs) very long to-do list now, uh, or
1: the book. So at the same time that I was coming out with this stuff on brand love, there were a bunch of people who were interested in what were called consumer brand relationships and other very closely related kinds Mm -hmm. of topics. It was a whole movement. And people in that movement had a slogan, if you will. And that slogan was, People form yeah. relationships with objects or with brands the same way we form relationships with people. And that makes a total sense. And it seems like a, it seems obvious and it's completely untrue. That was the big change for me. Neuroscience research started coming out, and, and we had a clue about this earlier. So there's this word to objectify a person. Mm-hmm. And We all know what that means is to think about that person in the way you normally think about objects. What that implies is that there is a way you normally think about objects, and that's different from the way you normally think about people. What the neuroscience showed is that isn't just a cultural thing that we teach kids. It's not that we just raise kids to see people and objects in different ways. Actually, it's hardwired into your brain at a very profound and basic level. And at a non-conscious level, there's a mechanism in your brain that sorts everything you experience into two different categories, people and everything else. And the stuff that's everything else, your brain treats it and thinks about it one way and people, your brain treats that and thinks about them in a very different way. Uh, So love is reserved for people. You don't normally love objects. That's why if we take like the stereotypical situation, it could be gender roles could be reversed here, but most of the time the word is used. It's a woman saying, oh, that man is objectifying me, right? He's treating Mm -hmm. me like a sex object. That same woman in a different situation with a different guy or different woman might be really happy to be sexually involved with that person, (laughs) right? They're not opposed to sex, but They're opposed to objectification. So what does that mean? The reason they're opposed to that is at an intuitive level, they get this idea that if you're objectifying, if you think about someone or something as if they're an object, you don't love them. That's why it's a problem when you objectify people. It's because it's really incompatible with love. And that's why we don't like it when people objectify us because they're not treat them. They're just treating us as an instrument because that's how your brain thinks about objects most of the time. Now, from there, you might think, does that mean people don't ever really love things? And there are a lot of people who will tell you that they're wrong, but they'll tell you that they'll say, (laughs) Nicole can only love other people. Nobody really loves objects. That's not true. But the way that you love objects is that your brain makes them honorary people. Your brain has to first Mm -hmm. start treating the object as if it was a person. And you can see this in reverse. I just talked about objectification objectification happens when your brain thinks about a person as if they were an object. So I'll give you another example of that from the book. This is a true story from a person who was working as a barista in a coffee shop during the pandemic. And so this, the one, there's one customer in the coffee shop, one customer comes in and the customer is not wearing a mask. And the barista points the sign on the wall. says, "Please wear a mask." And says, "Excuse me, would would you mind putting on a mask?" And the customer says, "Why? There's nobody here." So the customer mm-hmm. clearly <laughs> was seeing the barista as like part of the coffee making machinery, right? Mm-hmm. They weren't a person; they were just like part of the machinery. So, your brain can do that at times, and it can do the reverse. It can mm-hmm. take an object and think about it as if it's a person. And when we love things, that's part of what's going on as a precondition mm. for us to love things. And what that means is that if you want people to love something, one of the steps in there has to be get their brain to think about it as if it was a person.
0: Mm. That's really profound. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think um, so, too. And it's a totally different way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, in in marketing, people want customers to love their products all the time. And a lot of business people are really frustrated because they're like, oh, I make this product. It's really good. Mm-hmm. I put it out there. I spend money on advertising and people seem to value it. They buy it a certain amount, but they don't love it, right? <laughs> And my response to that is twofold. It is part of it is most of the time, they're not going to love it <laughs> because most of <laughs> are seeing it as an object. You don't love objects really, right? Mm-hmm. But you can value objects. You can think they're important because they help you, but you don't love them. And if you're wondering what's the difference between valuing something and loving something, just think of this example. And Matt, think about all the money you have in the world, you probably value that very highly because it's important to you. It's an important resource that you have. But if somebody came to you and said, I'll trade you all of the money you have in the world for a sum that's 20% larger than that, you'd be like, of course, yeah, why not? 20%, go for it, right? I think of a typical parent who loves their child. Someone walks up to them and says, your child is really cute, but I'll trade you your child for a different child. It's 20% cuter than your child, The if will call the police, love is different. Love involves, you do value things and we do value people. This person helps me. This money helps me. I value both of those things, but we love people. We, we see them as individuals and we care about them. The money, I don't care about the money. I just care what the money can do for it. It's very different. So i tell people look if people aren't loving your products you've got two main choices one is just to say that's okay and a lot of brands do that they say look people aren't going to love my stuff they're not going to love the competition I mean, people are going to see it as an object that's all right and now I'm, now that i get that i'm going to see what do i need to do to win an economic competition as an object competing against other objects mm-hmm. so that's that's one answer the other answer is no i, I want people to love this thing And people do that too. There's lots of brands that people do love. We could talk about those too. So if that's gonna happen, one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things I gotta do is humanize this brand in some way, personify it, get people to see the brand as a person because that's what will allow them to form this relationship. That's,
0: okay, that's pretty profound too. My immediate question is like, how do you go about then if you're Nike? And I think it's a brand that people really love. And so so I have a couple of questions here. The first one being like, how would you humanize, how did they, or how would somebody humanize an object or a brand? So
1: Nike is a great example because people, I don't remember which streaming service it's on, perhaps more than one. There's a movie out now called Air excellent movie it's just it's just a really fun interesting movie this whole issue set aside it's about the creation of the air jordan shoe mm. by nike and it's a very dramatic interesting story even if you're not like don't think of it as like a business movie it's mm. a sort of a human story mm. but one of the main points that they make in that is wow we really need to get michael jordan to endorse this shoe Because a shoe is just an object until a person steps into it. It's that connection of the shoe to Michael Jordan that enters consumers' minds. And then they start thinking about the shoe as human. So why is that? Why don't they think of Michael Jordan as human and the shoe is just a thing? That seems to be the way your brain works that if an object is in your mind closely connected to a person, mm. then your brain starts treating it as a person. So the metaphor I use about this is there's a sorting mechanism, unconscious sorting mechanism in your brain. It sorts out people from objects and thinks about them differently. We can think about that mechanism as if it's a bouncer at a nightclub, like the bouncer is saying, you're a person, you get to come in. And I think about you like a person. You're not a person. You stay out, I think about you like an object. So they're doing that sort of bouncer sorting mechanism. (laughs) If a celebrity comes to the bouncer at a nightclub, the bouncer will let the celebrity in. But you know what? The bouncer will also let in the celebrity's entourage. All Mm. those other people who aren't celebrities but are with the celebrity, they get to go in too. And in this metaphor, Michael Jordan is the celebrity and the shoe is part of his entourage connected to him and so when the Mm -hmm. bouncer in your brain says okay i'm treating you like a person the shoe gets treated like it gets to come into it comes along for the ride because it's got that kind of close connection and we do that all the time in our personal life so for example suppose you're dating somebody and they give you a gift of vase and you're really madly in love with this person you love that vase you put that vase on the mantelpiece every time you walk by you look at it and think. Oh, what a lovely vase, oh, terrific, All right? And then you break up with that person and you're really angry and you're really bitter and you walk by that vase, and you look at it, and like, what a horrible vase, get rid of that thing. That thing's out of here. So why did you turn on the vase? Your brain has connected that object to the person and you could always tell when that happens because the value you place in the object is totally connected to the value you place Mm in the person. And when you love the person, you love the object. And when you don't love the person anymore, you don't love the object anymore. (laughs) And they they, they slow it up and down together. And so that happens in our personal life. Every time we get a gift from somebody, we associate Mm -hmm. it with that person in, in that way. Now, it's often it might not always be enough. There are definitely times that we've gotten gifts where I really love the person. I don't really love this gift. Right? That happens but a lot of our feelings for a person does rub off on the gift. It might not determine everything, but mm-hmm. it, it does rub off and it influences and we have that kind of association with it. So that, that's one of the three ways mm. that people's brains start thinking about objects as if they're a person is that they associate the object with some other person.
0: Okay. Super fascinating how does identity factor into this relationship? Because you take a look at like Nike, take a look at Apple earbuds, or it's a kind of like a social status thing. But my guess is that the underlying thing is it's relating to people somehow, right? Of either I'm part of your tribe because we like the same things. And I think in my research for this interview, like that was part of something you talked about. Could you talk about that a little bit more?
1: Sure. So identity is the most central. So I mentioned a moment ago, there are three ways that Mm -hmm. your brain starts thinking about objects in human ways. One is the object is associated with some other person. Like you associate the object with the person who gave you the gift. The biggest, most common way is that you make the object part of your own identity. And since it's part of your identity, you in your person, Your brain thinks about it in these human ways as if it's a person. Uh, Why would you make an object part of your identity? Our identity is pretty flexible. Like when I first started hearing about this research, I had the rather naive idea that, no, my body is me, right? (laughs) That's just like, my body is me. Mm -hmm. Other things aren't me. They (laughs) may be, (laughs) I may like them, but they're not me. Just my body is me what i've learned through this research not just my own but a great deal of psychological research this is a topic that's a lot of work done in this area is that what your brain the reason you see your body as you is that your brain has this list of things that are you and your hmm. body is a number one on that list and that's why you see it as you but your body is just one of Several things that can be on that list. And it's not just a yes or no list, it's a more or less list. So there's some things that are very much you, like your body, and there's some things that are a little kind of you, like maybe your shoes, right? And there's some, and then there's all infinite number of things in the universe that aren't you at all. But it's this gradation of stuff. And things move on and off of that list. And you can see that, for example, it's a little bit flexible. If you're in America, suppose you're an American. And this is listening to who's listening to this. I'm an American. I'm in America. One of my friends comes to me and starts bad mouthing America. My response is usually, "Damn straight. Here's other things that are wrong with America." <laughs> but uh, I but I travel a lot, and so now imagine I'm in somewhere other than America, and someone comes to me and starts bad mouthing America. All of a sudden, my response is to defend America. Whereas I would never do that when I'm at home. I don't feel the same way when I'm at home. What's going on there? The context of being in a foreign country for me, America becomes part of who I, become salient to my identity. I think of myself mm-hmm. as an American. And so when this person starts saying bad things about America, wow. I feel like I myself am being insulted, and that triggers this response to want to defend the country. But when I'm in America talking to somebody else who's an American, and they start saying bad things about America, that's not a salient, relevant part of my identity at that moment. I think, I, I'm not really thinking about it that way. I don't personally feel insulted. He's another American, she's another American, we're both here, it's our right as Americans to complain. <laughs> we can both criticize what we don't like. It's a little bit flexible what goes on and off that list, but whenever you fall in love with a person or an object or an activity, The core psychological process that is going on is that this person or object or activity is moving in your brain from something that's seen as out there in the world to something that's seen as part of who you are. Mm. And we see objects and other things as part of who we are, and we see other people as part of who we are our sense of identity is much more flexible than I used to think it is. Mm. And this, there's, uh, again, reams of scientific data on how this works. In fact, one more thing that you might find interesting that I was really interested, they've done a lot of research where they look, using brain scans, what's going on in someone's brain when they think about a person that they love and when they think about an object that they love? And there are some differences, but there's, Things that are pretty similar, but the part of the brain that is always the most active when you think about a person, not you, somebody else that you love, or an object that you love, the part of your brain that's most active is the part of your brain that thinks about your own identity. Even when you're, and it's not true if you think about somebody you don't love, you're not thinking about <laughs> your own identity then. That's a, but you, know, you think about a person that you do love, you think about them just as if you're thinking about yourself. And you could, here's a, one more example to, to, to give you a little more <laughs> on this. that I, I like a lot: if you see somebody else do something wrong, we often are quick to blame them for what they did. They did that they're a stupid person, or careless, or whatever it is, right? When you do something wrong, your immediate impulse is to come up with an excuse
0: mm-hmm. for
1: it wasn't my fault, right? This something else was happening, etc. Low blood sugar. If, <laughs> if you love a person without thinking about it, you will instantly come up with an excuse about why they did that wrong thing, because your brain treats them as if they were you, because part of a love relationship is they become part of your identity. And so you extend that to them. And similarly, if you love an object and it does something wrong, you're much more likely to be forgiving of it and make up an excuse for why it did this thing, rather than blame the object for whatever went wrong. Because again, you've put it as you've made it part of your own identity. That again
0: is is super fascinating. Since this is the Meaningful Revolution podcast, we're talking about meaningful pursuits and purpose. How do you bridge the gap between love, love for people and things, and maybe a different way to rephrase this, is there any research that you know about or data on people that feel like they're living purposeful, meaningful lives and the things that they love?
1: Some, there is some, and I think there is a lot of connection there. It hasn't, some of what I'm gonna say is from research, some is from my informal observation. Okay, Uh, cool. Love and meaning are almost the same thing. They're not exactly the same thing, Mm. but they're really, overlapping to a a large extent, what meaning means in this sense, in the sense you're using a meaningful life, it's a synonym for important, important at a deep level, right? This is something that I feel is fundamentally important at some deeper level. And that's why it gives me meaning. Mm -hmm. The things that we think are fundamentally important at a deeper level are the things that we love and vice versa and the people that we love what makes something really deeply important to us is that connection either to our own identity or a connection to a person that we love. Mm. Much of the time, one of the mistakes people make is they think that our relationships with objects that we love are sort of person thing. They think that they're just like a, a relationship between us and the object. Whereas much of the time they're person thing person. The object mm-hmm. is important to us because it connects us to some other person. And we find the presence of that person meaningful in mm-hmm. our life, their love for us and our love for them. And here I use love, I think in the psychologically accurate way in our culture, maybe it's because we were like a little homophobic, hopefully a little less homophobic mm-hmm. now than we used to be. But people will be like, oh, I don't, my same sex friends, I don't love them. But yes, you do. That's mm-hmm. at a psychological level. You love your community. You love your the people around you. It's not necessarily sexual love, but mm-hmm. it's love. And that's what makes community work and make friendship work and make family work. It's the connection to those people that you really care about mm-hmm. and love that leads to most of us loving the objects that we love. And so take an example of a sports fan. A sports mm-hmm. fan loves sports and maybe a sports fan loves her television set uh, i've heard this a lot from people why does she love her television set well, because her friends come over and they watch sports together on the television set mm-hmm. and it really isn't about the television set it's about the the way the television set allows her to form these good relationships with the people and that in terms of happiness i think is a very important key that the people who are really able to derive happiness from the objects in their life are the people who, who use them effectively to create meaningful relationships with other people. So the object becomes a way of connecting with other people. And the people who have tend to have more problems in terms of their psychological well-being are people who might say use the object as a way of avoiding other people, or the object comes as, a, as something that separates them from other people. Now, I don't usually think the object is to blame in those cases. I think we have a an, an really strong innate desire to form relationships with other people. And I think that if that's working when you're succeeding in that, people really prefer that to dealing with objects. <laughs> and I don't think there's been a lot of cases where people have had nice, strong relationships with other people in a loving community and have said, no, I'm gonna skip all that. I really want to just go with my stamp collection now. Uh, <laughs> most of the time when that's happening, it's either that the stamp collection is helping them connect with other people, mm-hmm. right? The other community of stamp collectors. Or if it's not, they get, they're lonely first and they turn to the stamp collection because they don't have the social relationships. Mm. It can become a a problem because you get this sort of momentum effect. So maybe the thing that got the ball rolling was you didn't have the social relationships. You got bored and lonely. You started playing video games or stamps Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, right? And that kept you from being quite so bored. It didn't solve your loneliness problem, but it took your mind off of loneliness and, and helped solve your boredom problem a little bit. The problem is that once you get into that mode, you would think that the lonelier someone got, the more they would be motivated to go seek out other people. But the Mm -hmm. weird thing about loneliness is when people get into it, they actually develop, it becomes hard for them to go and see other people. Mm -hmm. I think maybe an analogy would be something with exercise. I've noticed for myself that I've gone through periods when I exercise very regularly and I've been in good shape and when I'm in really good shape and I go without exercise for a couple of days, my body's like anxious, mm-hmm. go out there, get some more exercise. But <laughs> if I don't, if I sit on my butt for three weeks, all of a sudden this physiological change happens and then instead of wanting to go exercise, I just want to keep in my chair. I'm like, I don't want to go this exercise. starts start to feel really bad as a thought and I really resist. I, I think it's the same with loneliness. If, you're, if you've got such relationships, you're in a good place, you get a little bit lonely, you've got this urge, oh, I need to go and call my friends and get out there and do this. But if you get lonely enough, if it becomes built into you in the same way that you're, you're health-wise, you need to go exercise. That's the best thing for you. But something in you resists that and doesn't want to do it. When you get really lonely for a long time, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then the stamp collection of the video games or whatever becomes it's something that enables you to indulge that impulse to not go in, and deal with people. So that's why I think one of the ways that it really can backfire on people and then become a problem for them. In
0: everyone's journey to find meaning, there's usually one moment where they make a decision to act. It's that point when you encounter a poor product or a piece of music or something else in your life that you love and you decide that you can do it better. And you go about creating better. It's that point in your life when you look around and wonder, how did I get here? How did life get so boring or stressful or just not how you imagined? And so you decide it's time to figure out how to change that. Or it's that feeling that you could be working on something that's more filling, more in service to others and more exciting And so you decide it's time to figure out how to have more of that in your life. And in each of these scenarios, there's this call to adventure, a call from your heart to change, and the decision to act. So I'm Sean Butner, and I help people heed their call from their hearts to change. As a certified high-performance coach, I guide people through a science-based process to help them live their life more aligned to their aspirations and dreams and maybe that's you and if it is maybe it's your time is now to work with the coach to help you follow your call to adventure so if so you can apply for a free one hour strategy session with me at www.seanbutner.com coaching or check the link below in the comments in there we will spend one hour building your high performance plan we'll talk about what your call of adventure is, that decision that you've made or want to make, and then the plan to make it happen and realize it. And so I've helped people start businesses. I've helped people change careers. I've helped people change how they feel about their lives through this process called high-performance coaching. I know it can help you. I love coaching. I love the, the people that I'm able to serve with it, and I hope that's you. So check that link below wherever you're listening to or watching this episode of The Meaningful revolution podcast. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Right on. Yeah. It's reminding me of, I know there's a lot of like new neuroscience that comes up and I'm not qualified to cite it, but the talk about these dopamine hits. You're getting dopamine from doing this activity or interacting with this object. And if your brain gets trained, that's where the dopamine comes from and not people that you get into in this particular example. You have to do a lot of work to rewire that.
1: <laughs> okay. I think that that's true, and that can happen with people. You can develop the dopamine ha- habit. I know that it's controversial. Some people call this addiction. Other people say they don't like to use the word addiction there. I don't know, but it, it's a powerful habit in any, in any <laughs> yeah. event. And it, it, it can be very powerfully motivating for people when you get too caught up. I've noticed this just with myself. I was saying this to my wife last night, you know, that I've gotten in this habit. I went for a long time where I wasn't eating desserts after dinner. And then I got in this habit of always having something sweet after <laughs> dinner about the same time at night. And it dawned on me, I've really got a, a dopamine sort of <laughs> habit or addiction. That's what's really going on here. Like, It's triggered at 730. Like, I want that dopamine hit. Give me a cookie or more than one cookie or more than several cookies. And maybe I need to just stop that because (laughs) it's clearly just uh, this neurologically wired in habit at this point that I get this craving.
0: Yeah. Oh, I also have a similar experience with the after dinner sweets. My wife is very much into desserts. And I wasn't before I met her. And now <laughs> I'm constantly like, oh, I've done this every night for a whole week. I need, maybe need to, to, to switch yeah. that. That's pretty cool. So to summarize what we are just talking about, it seems that the things that we love are avenues towards people <laughs> and relationships and where we find meaning. Something that that I believe about Meaningful Pursuits is that there's a lot of meaning and happiness in creating things that that people love is a thing. Do you know? Or do you have any thoughts on the process of creating the things that people love that then help them find people to love other people? That's a long chain there. But there's a better way to say that. But
1: (laughs) I think along with... there often is a connection. We do create things together with other people and people often form communities, the quilting circle Mm -hmm. or the maker space where Mm -hmm. there is this social aspect to what you're creating. So those are connected, but there also is a drive just to be creative, to be generative. And that provides a lot of meaning in people's lives as well. A sense of what I'm doing is important. I'm producing something of value. And one of the things I encourage people to think about is there's a couple more approaches. You, you, you look at something. Let's take clothing, for example. Clothing is often s- criticized. People are very into clothing. A person's shallow and materialistic and et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of bad press that comes with that. And one solution might be to say, oh, I don't care about clothing anymore. I'm, I'm going to stop that pursuit. But a lot of people don't want to not care about clothing. And frankly, clothing is really fun and interesting. And you you shouldn't have to not care about clothing. It's it's a whole artistic realm of life, right, that you can do. So one piece of advice that I have for people is maybe get more into clothing. Maybe love clothing Mm -hmm. more. And one way to do that is to start making and designing clothing. Mm -hmm. Instead of just being a passive consumer who spends all your time shopping. And shopping is a creative activity. That's why it's fun. You're assembling, you're curating this collection, you're assembling these things, and that's Mm. an aesthetic and creative activity for people. And it's a social activity. People go shopping with their friends. And so you've got the social connection there, which makes it very powerful, and the creative activity, and so that really works. But maybe find a different social group with a, a different creative activity. So there are lots of groups that meet where people... Talk about the clothes they're making and learn skills from each other and sew together and mm-hmm. design together and cut together. And you can create a whole community around that. It'll be so much better for your budget. Mm-hmm. And it'll be better for your closet. Because <laughs> if you're into clothing, I'm willing to bet your closet is overflowing with crap you never <laughs> use. That's just such, such a safe <laughs> bet. And it's really bad for the, the world's ecology as well to Mm -hmm. produce all this junk and then you don't really value it. You don't use it and then it just gets thrown away and then you feel guilty. How about instead of shopping, it's a long time. You're gonna have to go through a period where it's frustrating because it's not an easy skill. You learn to start designing with other people, get involved designing, sewing, making stuff. Making jewelry is another great way to do this. And uh, you could have a much deeper relationship. So instead of, you'll find it instead of loving clothes less, you love clothes much more than you used to. Because you used to be like the person who listens to the radio in the car. Now you're like a musician who makes music and who really appreciates what's going on. Now you have a much deeper reaction. And you know, even the stuff like the fashion brands, you'll look at those and you'll be like, now I get it. Now I actually see what's happening, why this designer is a good designer. Not just mm-hmm. because their name's on the front of this thing, but because they're actually doing interesting things and now you know the difference but now it makes something interesting. <laughs> Adding creativity and productiveness as a, to your interests, I think, is a nice way to stretch your budget and get a lot more out of things.
0: Yeah, I love that idea and it reminds me I have a so I'm a huge nerd. <laughs> And like, something that I did with my friends in high school and still do to this day is we will play Dungeons and Dragons. Uh-huh. And my buddy I've known since kindergarten, his uh, COVID project essentially, when we're all locked in was to figure out how to make dice. Right. And there's a whole uh-huh. sub community uh, of people trading tips and casts and techniques. And he went super into it and, Ultimately to be able to create things that he would then give to the rest of the, the group and the sense of, of joy um, and excitement I really just got nerding out more into he's an English teacher by nature. He was getting into chemistry, which was super fun, but the the way it lights people up, I think when you create the things that you, you love, like I think you know? it definitely does enhance your love for it and. Like a musician, you learn how to play guitar. Like for myself, I know how to, I can, I've been playing for a while and I didn't really like jazz and you know, I like blues cause it sounded cool, but having an appreciation for it cause you're like, oh, that's really technical. And how do they form those things is super important, but yeah, create the things you love folks. That's the message.
1: Yeah. And it's awesome. I was just visiting. I mentioned that co-author, Mara Edelman, who I did the dating service research last weekend. I was just visiting with her at her place in California, and she retired from academics to become an artist and Hmm. makes jewelry, tiles, paintings, (laughs) all sorts of stuff, really really good stuff. And it's all over her house, not just her stuff, but Stuff that inspired her that looks Mm. in similar kinds of styles or other work in the same kind of media that she does work in it's it's everywhere. And it's great to be able to produce that kind of an environment for yourself, where again, you're surrounded, your world consists of things, a lot of them you made yourself or that a friend who makes the same stuff, you kind of stuff traded with you or just gave you as a gift because you're in this community with them. And it's such a warm environment to be an emotionally warm environment. To be.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely.
1: I, I know you wrote your most
0: recent book about that shift in your mindset on the relationship of how we love things and, and whatnot. Has there been anything else that's been super surprising through your research that's changed how you behave as a consumer you behave as a person out in the world, maybe? or how Hmm. you view
1: things. One thing relates to a topic we were just talking about, which is the dopamine Mm hits. So I've always been something of a hedonist and Mm -hmm. really I love food and wine and music and massages and Mm -hmm. mountain biking and just anything that's exciting and fun and stimulating Uh, I've been very big on that my whole life. And some of this research on dopamine has been showing that if you get a lot of pleasurable stimulation all the time, it starts to leave you less happy the rest of the time. According to these theories, at least, the way this works, is that when you say eat a cookie, you get a hit of dopamine, which creates a sort of reward sensation. Mm-hmm. And then there's what's called an opponent process. Your brain, it doesn't just let the dopamine linger around there in your brain, but it sets in motion a process that actively removes the dopamine. And so that you, when you've noticed this experientially, you eat the cookie, you enjoy it when you're eating it, but When you're done eating the cookie, the enjoyment goes away. You don't keep enjoying it 20 (laughs) minutes later. And you're doing this on purpose, so to speak. Evolution is doing this so that if you want that pleasant experience, you need to eat another cookie. And your evolution wants to motivate you to eat cookies because at the time we evolved, calories were scarce, right? They're no longer scarce, but they were then. So it was good for you to eat this kind of thing. But what happens is that when you start having more and more of this dopamine stimulation, that other process that removes the dopamine afterwards gets stronger and stronger. And the process that creates the dopamine gets weaker and weaker. So what's supposed to happen is you eat a cookie, you get dopamine, the cleanup crew comes, (laughs) removes the dopamine, you go back to normal and you're just your normal happy self. You've just had a cookie. Everything's good. But if you, eat a lot of cookies all the time. You start to produce less dopamine when you have it. And the cleanup crew gets really big and starts taking away more dopamine than was produced mm-hmm. to be. So your overall level of dopamine starts to go down because the, the cleanup crew is too big and strong. And it's you know taking away from the baseline and not just the, the added dopamine. And the more you do this, the more your overall level goes down. So you want to keep your sort of fun little, that kind of intense, basic, pleasurable stimulation. You certainly should enjoy it. But my old approach, which was nothing exceeds like excess, maybe (laughs) wasn't the wisest strategy. And I never really understood asceticism before. But I'm thinking maybe there's something to that. Not asceticism in the, the image of the person who whips themselves. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. But asceticism in someone who doesn't chase every hedonistic pleasure in every moment. There may be something to that. Mm. Um, and I've started actually, maybe it's not whipping myself, but I have started a, a, a little bit of a ascetic practice in that regard. There's a lot of health research that shows that cold exposure, if done right, is very healthy. You don't want to get hypothermia, but a certain amount of cold exposure stimulates your body, and it also increases your attention immediately afterwards. I've started starting the day with a cold shower where I I turn the cold water on blast, full, no hot water at all. And... It's really cold. <laughs> yeah, it's think, oh, my God, like I'm panting. My wife says, I know when you're taking one of those showers, I can hear you outside of the bathroom, like huffing and puffing <laughs> in the cold water. But boy, does that get your heart going and mm-hmm. really floods your body with very productive, positive kinds of uh, hormones and, uh, and chemicals and helps you pay attention, it makes it more productive all morning because of, of that simulation. And, and the research on dopamine is showing that, that it actually, it's a little bit painful to be mm-hmm. in water that's that cold. And what it does is it's the opposite of this effect. If you have too much pleasure, too many little dopamine hits, the cleanup crew gets too super strong and, and the, the dopamine hits produce less and less. If you start off with something like that, it makes—it it shrinks the cleanup crew. It keeps your overall <laughs> level of dopamine for the rest of the day is actually higher. Because your body is rebalancing from this initial experience, which while admittedly is not super pleasant, isn't harmful or dangerous in any way to be in a cold shower. Right on. Yeah. I've, there's a
0: like cryo spa close to where Mm -hmm. I live, which is cold air. So it get like you do like negative 150 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's air. So have you tried uh, this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I go regularly. And you go
1: regularly? I Tell go, me
0: about that. That sounds insane to me. What's that like? It, it's less insane than water that's at zero degrees or whatever, at freezing, 32 right. degrees. For whatever reason, cold air, it's a less of a... It's still really cold, and you still get the effects. I've done ice baths and stuff like that, too. Because you experiment with doing it yourself sometimes, and the, the cold air is less of an initial shock. You'll still get a, a, as cold, and you're in for three minutes. And the way that the, the spa works, you like cover your face and hands and extremities, but you still get that effect of the cold. Without that, like I will, like I have a very high pitch that'll get all the dogs barking when I do like cold showers and stuff, because it, it's just not for me. But I found the the, the cold air. Even though it's super chilly, it's not as painful
1: or shocking as, like, cold water. So, Fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I know the water. And, and I can only imagine because the water that I use from the shower mm-hmm. feels so full. Cool. When I put a <laughs> thermometer in there, it's not that cool. Yeah. Maybe it's, like, what, 60 degrees or something like that? And it yeah. just feels unbelievably cold. I know people take ice baths. I know people go into water. That's three degrees, thirty-four degrees, (laughs) just about freezing. I can only imagine what that must be like, because (laughs) the shower water is plenty cold for me. But I maybe I'll try. I'll see. I'm sure it's got to be one of those private spas around Ann Arbor. Check one of those out.
0: Yeah, I recommend it, and I would say I prefer that over cold water any day. Hopefully that that helps. With that, uh, Professor Ahuvia, thank you so much for the very fascinating. Conversation. I have tons and tons of notes that I'm going to need to review just to start mulling this over. But if people want to check out your book or follow up with you on this particular topic, what would be the best way for people to get in touch with you? We could put
1: that in the show notes. Sure. So the book, once again, is called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. And the title, hopefully, will make a little more sense to people now. Because the things we love, obviously the things we love, and then connect us is all about how they connect us to other people. That sort of person thing, person effect. And make us who we are is about how they become part of our identity and make us who we are. And that's available anywhere. Find books, Amazon, and a lot of local bookstores will have that. If people are interested, I do a lot of speaking. I've got two different types of talks that I do. I do a lot of speaking for businesses on brand love. and But I also do talks about, for people who are just interested in this intellectually, want to understand themselves better by understanding the things that they love. It's a really nice way of looking at yourself and developing self-understanding is to look at what you love and what that says about you and, and how mm-hmm. it relates to who you are. So I do both those kinds of talks. And if people are interested in that, they can find me at drbrandlove.com. So <laughs> drbrandlove.com and uh, that'd be terrific. Awesome. Definitely check out his but I'm
0: excited to um, dig into the things that we love, the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Ahuvia, thank you again so much for being on The Meaningful Revolution.
1: Uh, okay, Sean, it was a lot of fun. And yeah, if there's a topic you want to discuss that it's relevant to me, uh, let me know. All right,
0: you got it. All right. And with that, we'll see you in the next episode of The Meaningful
1: Revolution podcast.